Welcome back to episode three of TNDC Podcast. We are broadcasting with an additional member to the clan, which it, we're all very excited about because I'm sure the listeners are getting tired of just three of us rambling on back and forth about tech valuations and gun control and why now. And um, Nonsense. We're super interesting. We are super interesting. In fact, I've gotten the most comments about the token Brit in the room. So <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, Alex... Cove, as we call him on on here, uh, on Monday we played poker, and he was very concerned about his accent being yeah. replaced by an American. It's eroding. There's it's there's, eroding. there's there's no doubt. There's there's <laughs> a there's a there's a North Carolina twang getting in there. So, uh, <laughs> so who who knows where it'll be in five or ten years time? But it's definitely eroding. Yeah, I think I think by the end of. Um, by the end of this endeavor, if if there is an end in sight, who knows? Uh, you might be talking just like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, uh, anyway, we have the regulars back. Uh, Jake on the on the host panel here. We have Cove. We have Harold. And in addition, we have Kyle Muma, who is a classmate of ours at the Fuqua School of Business, um, and we're anxious to hear his perspective on our agenda today which is um, quick soapbox and then, well, story acknowledgements first, then we'll do a quick soapbox and then we'll move into the implications of a nuclear Iran in North Korea. Uh, we want to bring that back to the mission of this podcast, which is to talk about implications, not only just foreign policy and you know the national security of the U.S., but also how it might affect trade and, and other uh, business topics. Kyle, do you want to throw in a, a quick intro about yourself, a little background? Sure. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to have you. Loved, loved the first you. two episodes. I think, as you guys talked about plenty, this is an important conversation for us to be having, uh, making sure that all different perspectives are heard. I think on this podcast, I'll probably be the furthest left perspective that you're going to hear in this group. Um, but grew up here in Durham in a pretty conservative household, so I've been all over the spectrum. Uh, my background, just so that people know, is predominantly in athletics, Duke basketball, Duke football, uh, dabbled with the Durham Bulls and USA basketball and some other athletic endeavors, but predominantly in athletics. So different perspective, different kind of part of the spectrum, different place that I grew up from these guys, and so hopefully we'll uh, help you guys contribute to what I think is a productive conversation. Excellent, and I'm particularly interested in this because the soapbox, as you'll see, uh, has some sports implications in a couple of minutes. Um, so thanks for joining us. We uh, how about a quick recap of last week? We talked about uh, tech valuations. It was it was a very cool soapbox that uh, Cove went on for about three minutes and um, talked about the distortions and the tech. In it. Do you want to give like 20 seconds there? Yeah. So the the prevailing argument was the tech stocks are and tech companies even if they're not publicly traded are, are massively overvalued even the ones that do make a profit and precious few of them do um, are, are largely overvalued and, and it's not based on the value that they actually have it's based on essentially an, an, an investment bet that people will continue to invest to, to value them highly and therefore the return you can make on is, is, a, is a capital gain rather than actually delivering value to people and, and it's a bubble that, that has to burst at some stage right uh, then we moved on to a topic that had zero 
connection to tech valuations. And we talked a uh, controversial issue that arises. We kind of deduced every 64 days when it's, it's you know, very heartbreaking, but that's about the frequency that we see mass shootings in the U.S. So the, the discussion about gun policy is one that comes up frequently and, and we don't really seem to have much action in the wake of such tragedies as Las Vegas had happened uh, just prior to that last recording. Let's move on. Uh, encourage you all to, to revisit those episodes if you haven't yet. Uh, and why don't we do, do you want to go around the horn and yeah, talk, let's uh, do it. Let's yeah. talk do it. the story acknowledgements? So why don't you go, Kev? Okay, so firstly, just, just a, a quick kind of thoughts with people affected by the wildfires in California. Um, I know everyone here is, is thinking about them and, and um, sending our best wishes and, and prayers. My story comes from the Wall Street Journal this week where they reported that the Chinese government through China Daily News and other state-run news organizations is trying to take, trying to coerce Chinese social media and other tech companies to give up a 1% share to the government. Uh, Tencent, Weibo and a Alibaba portfolio company are in the in the targets of the Chinese government who are trying to get them to issue special management shares. Um, exactly what this means in terms of management operations, censorship, and uh, what this means for the you know the state of the free press, especially the online press in China is, is potentially significant and something that we should definitely keep an eye on. Cool, um, great. So what I wanted to talk about, this is Harold, but, but by the way, uh, is if y'all remember from podcast uh, one, and, and it, you know if you like, you can definitely go back and kind of listen to that. But basically, we talked about how all organizations have um, certain ideologies that they represent, either consciously or subconsciously. And essentially, we even kind of explored and, and even kind of came to, I don't know if a conclusion is the right word, but at least one of the, the theories or hypothesis hypothesis was that if you are outside uh, an institution's uh, variance of ideology, then that's when, you know, issues may, may, may arise for an individual. In the news, uh, the, the, the story I want to bring up is Marsha Blackburn, um, a Republican out of Tennessee who's running for U.S. Senate. Uh, she was just taken off of Twitter for posting something um, related uh, around Planned Parenthood. Um, the comment was, came across as controversial by many, and I just wanted to highlight that, yes, um, her message was taken off Twitter initially, and a lot of that has to do with the, 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 the point of, okay, maybe she was outside of the institutional variance uh, of, of, of uh, the ideology that Twitter represents. Yeah, and then also, of course, it was uh, d just put back. So it's it, it it put back on Twitter. So it's interesting kind of how Twitter's kind of handled this. I think it's something to kind of to look at and follow and definitely correlates to what we talked about in uh, Podcast One. Awesome. Mine is one that I know Harold will be interested in, as in Eagle Scout. Eagle Scout, right? Eagle Scout. Yeah. Uh, every uh, court of honor I, I, I go to I get the opportunity to sit in the eagle's nest as they as, as they call it so yeah definitely a, a boy scout I, I find this story particularly interesting I think because of my time in athletics when I, I just find discussions of gender to be interesting in organizations that are traditionally gender binary 
Uh, the Boy Scouts of America today announced that their board of directors uni unanimously agreed uh, to welcome girls into the Cub Scout program and to create a path for them to pursue uh, an Eagle Scouts, what is it, a rank, Harold? Um, and the so highest uh, rank. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's just a, it's an interesting decision by an organization that's been uh, rapidly losing membership over recent years uh, to decide to turn the Boy Scouts of America into an organization for both boys and girls. And a unanimous decision. I didn't know that. Yeah. Jeez. You'd think there'd be some debate over it. Who knows? Um, so I'm coming full circle from, and actually the circle will continue over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to talk about tax briefly leading up to an episode where we will focus primarily on tax in the second segment. The proposed tax plan is interesting. It's moving, fr uh, proposed tax plan, moving from seven brackets, if you will, to three. So there's a previously or current rates, there's a 10, 15, 25, 28, 33, 35.6% income tax. Moving to 12, 25, and 35, they, they're all mapped out. I'm not going to go through all of the numbers, but it's an interesting, it, it's an interesting development uh, post last week when the House voted on the budget, uh, tax will be able to go through under reconciliation if uh, if we get the 51 vote, so 51% vote. Something also interesting to keep following, and that's going to lead up to our, our uh, tax episode down the road. Okay, so everyone's had a, a story and some interesting stuff there. We're going to move on to Jake's uh, soapbox for this week, which is uh, a little bit controversial, but uh, we'll see what you guys think, and uh, we'll see what uh, what we think here. So, Jake, uh, take it away. Okay, and I'm going to dim my, my Philips Hue lights. I'm practicing for when this podcast finally gets sponsored. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> shouting out to my <laughs> Philips Hue lights. I'm turning them red, white, and blue, except I'm missing one, so they're only red and white. Um, we have a timer. Got it. Okay, here we go. So if you will entertain this for, for a second, uh, let me title this. I, I titled my soapbox, Standing Up for What's Right. And you can take that for however, however you see fit. Uh, the, the basic premise is um, addressing the issue in the NFL with the kneeling protesting. And if you would, just humor me for a second. I'm going to take it back to like, Remember in elementary school when a teacher would make you close your eyes and and try to envision the context of, of where we are. So if you're driving and listening to this, don't close your eyes. But if you're just sitting at the computer, take you know the next three minutes, just close your eyes and, and hear me out for a second. That includes you three. <laughs> Done. <coughs> it's September 3rd, 1814. And Francis Scott Key and John Stuart Skinner sail from Baltimore on the HMS Minden flying a flag of truce toward the British Royal Navy. The two were on a mission approved by President James Madison to negotiate a prisoner exchange. They climbed aboard the HMS Tonnant on September 7th to reach a deal. But while on board, Key and Skinner overheard details of a British attack on Baltimore and were therefore forced to stay on the ship and watch the bombardment of Fort, McHen Fort McHenry from afar. For the next few days, the Americans held their own and even kept the British from landing, from a landing attempt west of Baltimore due to help by nearby Fort Covington, the last line of defense. 
On the morning of September 14th, the Americans lowered the storm flag and replaced it with the American flag, flying with 15 stars and 15 stripes. Key felt the need to sit down and write about what he had just witnessed. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does, the star, does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave? You can open your eyes. And I knew that I would get emotional during this because this really rings true for me. If you just think for a second, what must have been going on in Francis Scott Key's mind to write the poem? He's in, he's in complete awe. The two sentences in the lyric are actually questions that he's seeing the red, white, and blue flag waving in a distance. He just witnessed his own countrymen take relentless fire and could do nothing about it. Fort McHenry was heavily outnumbered and America prevailed. The national anthem and our flag stand for so much more than whatever issues are happening today, this week, this month, year, whatever. They stand for triumph, unity, and hope that America prevails as we always do. Um, General Dempsey wrote a so General Dempsey, actually, a, a little background. I'm actually taking a class of his, uh, which has been very interesting at Fuqua, uh, leadership-based uh, class. <coughs> and he wrote in a USA Today opinion piece dated September 18, 2017, in the course of everyday life, there are very few opportunities for the people of the US to come together, pause, and reflect on the hope that is only possible with freedom and democracy. Our national anthem is a statement of respect for this hope, not a declaration that those present agree with everything our nation does or fails to do. The U.S., at this is, so I've been reading a little bit, but now this is me commenting. The U.S. absolutely has a scar in our country's history, namely slavery, slavery and discrimination against black Americans. I don't deny it. I also don't deny that I'll ever comprehend the struggles of the black race through history. But we have to find a way to unify again, and standing during the national anthem, respecting how far we've come, speaks so much louder to the cause. So, allow me to inoculate. Schneids, you're not black, you don't get it. Okay, then everything I just said went in one ear and out the other. I understand this is a controversial topic. Please don't immediately shut down when we who might be different try to discuss the root of the issue and see how we can fix it. Second, the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting any, in, re, no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So I get it. There's a reason the founders led with, the, with freedom of speech as an underpinning of our Constitution so that no person in the U.S. feels oppressed by a ruling body. That's how we are fortunate enough to be able to talk about this stuff on our podcast with you all. And I'm in no way denying that kneeling is unlawful. I just think it's the wrong time and wrong message. So how do we fix it? Here's what I believe is counterproductive. Trump's call to fire players that kneel during the anthem. I mean, that 
it, that's outrageous. I mean, come on. Second, ESPN commentator Michael Wilbin comparing Jerry Jones to a slave owner. He said, I'm part of the interruption. The word that comes to my mind, and I don't care who doesn't like me using it, is plantation. The players are here to serve me. They will do what I want no matter how much I pay them. They're not equal to me. That's what this says to me and to mine. And this is after Jerry Jones said he'll bench any player that disrespects the flag. And you know what? I actually did not mind the Cowboys coming on the field, doing a quick kneel together before the anthem, and then standing during the two minutes and 30 seconds. That's fine. You know, that, that sends the message that they want to convey. That's fine. Just stand during the anthem. And then number three, Al Sharpton said the same thing, that Jerry Jones comments, smacks of a plantation mentality. And honestly, in my book, Sharpton had zero credibility to start, and now if it's possible, he has negative. In conclusion, Dempsey later wrote in the same piece mentioned above, life presents plenty of opportunities for us to disagree with one another and seemingly fewer opportunities in which we agree. Standing together during the national anthem at sporting events should be one of those times when we agree, when we focus on the things that bind us together, even as we prepare to let our voices be heard in disagreement about which team is the better team. How did you on time? I got lost in the the the, the message. It was, it was good. I, I think you're right around five minutes, man. That was great. I might have gone a little over. Hit me with questions. Or just criticize it. So I think <coughs> you're right to acknowledge there are issues and there are, and there are problems. And this country is, for all its strengths, has an issue with race. That there is no, nobody in their right mind can argue that there isn't racial inequality in the United States. There, there just is. Um, I think there's, my personal opinion is I think that when people try and ascribe motive to that and talk about either overt or subconscious racism, I think that overlooks too many ingrained cultural socioeconomic issues that actually play a much bigger effect in that inequality than racism or bias. Nevertheless, there is a problem and it needs to be addressed. The question that I think is more pertinent to this particular issue is, is the right time to try and address that issue while the national anthem is playing before a football game? My my instinct, like yours, Jake, is is that, and like General Dempsey's, is that that is not the right time or the right place to have that conversation and to raise this issue. And I, I took inspiration, and you using the soapbox, I took inspiration from the greatest of the civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King. Reading his text for his "I Have a Dream" speech, he introduces his dream by saying, "It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream." This is a nation that, for all its imperfections, believes that through improvement, through democracy, through freedom, through the things that are written in stone in the Constitution, improvements can be made, things can get better, things can change. And to say that the country or the symbol is, you know, the, the, the ideology of that country or the symbolism of that country is in some way responsible for those problems that exist is not looking for a solution, it's looking to throw blame. And and so I think that 
we need to have the conversation. It needs to be brought up. It's an important conversation to address. And it's important to find solutions. It's important to work together to find those solutions. Doing something as divisive as kneeling during the national anthem does not move the agenda forward, does not help empower, help fix the problem. It only creates two sides of yet another argument, yet another division, and that's not helpful. And, and I hope that I was really clear in stating that I know there are issues. I know that there are issues that need to get fixed. I know that what these players are standing for as far as social injustice, um, you know, we have, uh, as I mentioned, we have a scar. We have a scar in our nation's history. It and and present as well. And present, sure, sure. And it and also, I mean, on this podcast, we want to promote discussion and debate around public policy. And we could also, you know, venture into the realm of talking about the, you know, cops and Black Lives Matter movement. And and we can, you know, if if we all feel comfortable doing that, I'm happy to have that conversation too. I didn't really want this to get there because I think that's a whole nother issue, a whole nother soapbox that I think that obviously the, these players, um, there's, there, you know, they're all very interrelated. Uh, but as far as finding the opportunity to protest at a time that isn't so divisive, I think would just speak much louder than the national anthem, which has a much deeper meaning to the majority of, uh, of Americans here. And and would be more productive. I, I feel I, that I agree. the solutions that are required to f try and fix this problem are not going to be found by protesting during the national anthem. They're going to be found by everyone reaching together and trying to understand each other's viewpoint and and work together on, on fixing the problems that, that exist in this country. Which is, I, I hope that the NFL makes the right moves with this moving forward. I, th I don't know if you guys read Roger Gad Goodell's statement today, but I think the best thing that he said in that statement was about the need to turn protest into progress. And that's that said a lot. I'm not a big Roger Goodell fan, but that to me said a lot about what needs to now happen. I, personally, would I choose to kneel during the national anthem? I don't. I don't think that I would, but I also can understand these people who feel like they are doing it like Cove mentioned maybe last week he wore a black shirt to school in support of a C lead teammate somebody that he really cared about whose struggle or challenges he couldn't understand fully but was willing to support her by taking that action and I think I'm not personally offended by them choosing to do that because I I truly don't understand and at the end of the day I just hope that it brings us to a good point where the conversation ultimately can be productive. I think, I think the NFL would be well advised to go back to where they were in 2009 when teams were not required to be on the field for the national anthem. I think teams would then choose to stay in the locker room and this conversation could go out of the public eye and become a conversation between the owners and the players, between the players and the you know, social rights organizations that they work for, but between the people who can actually make the meaningful change that we're all looking to see. But but even that, Kyle, there, there's a reason that we play the national anthem before every sporting event in this country. And it's because there is that glimmer of hope that wherever you are coming from or whatever issues are on your mind, maybe they're social, maybe they're political, maybe you're having problems at home, who knows? But for that 
two minutes and 30 seconds, everyone is American. We're all on the field. We're in the stands. I mute everything that's going on in my in my. Uh, this is me. I mean, personally, I actually do stop everything that I'm doing, and I and I witness whoever is singing on TV the national anthem because it it really is that important to me, and I feel like it should be as important to everyone else that is fortunate enough to live here. And I think walking out on field post 2009 is just as important as standing during it. You know, I I understand the sentiment. I'm the same way. I When I used to work in athletics, whatever I was doing, as soon as the National Anthem started, wherever I was in the stadium, whether I could see the flag or not, I stopped because it's something that I care about. At the same time, I, th- I think I would have a different reaction if the form of protest was, you know, verbally disparaging the flag or yelling during the National Anthem. It's, I think, in my mind it's within the realm of a reasonable peaceful protest that our troops and our country have fight to have the right for to get down on one knee look at the flag link arms with your brother and uh, appreciate the national anthem while making a statement yeah i mean ultimately you know aside from any personal opinion that 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 we may have which i know we all do um you know, everyone has, which is one of the beauty beauties of our our country, is that people do have the right to um, express themselves as they as they choose. So in this case, at the end of the day, right, people have that right to to um, to, to kneel or or not or not to kneel. Um, it, I'll just continue to kind of put in my little kind of two cents on this whole ideology piece is um, I, I think it's interesting because as you look at organizations and organizations owners even within the NFL at the end of the day right each organization even the NFL and its certain in its respective teams I believe as you look at the Cowboys and these different examples we've talked about they have their own respective ideologies um, that are driven and promoted by individuals that run those organizations so it's interesting to me to see how those different owners, you know, across the spectrum respond. And ultimately, as, as, as people within that organization fall outside of that variance of that institution, its ideology, or its ideological kind of perspective, then it's interesting to see how people, like, respond. And I, I'm fascinated by, by, that, by that concept. Yeah, and, and next week, the, all the owners and players union are going to meet, and they're going to talk about it and see how to move forward. So... Appreciate you guys hearing me out on that one. That's something that uh, really resonates with me. So we we should move on. Um, and our next topic is the segment that, uh, you know, is particularly, I don't know, uh, just very important today in our foreign policy, our, our national security. We can talk about foreign policy agnosium because there's so much going on in the, in the Middle East, in Venezuela, Mexico, and but we decided to limit this to uh, a title, if you will, of implications of a nuclear Iran and nuclear North Korea. And this is all piggybacking off of Trump's statements about potentially uh, decertifying the Iran nuclear deal. And then, of course, uh, with Kim Jong-un overseas, you know, threatening us. And so I guess we just kind of pick it up from there. Anyone want to start with the... So, 
I'll start, and I want to add one more thing to kind of the scope of this is not just what are the implications of nuclear pro nuclear programs in these countries that have less than good relations to the United States, but also what can be done to prevent it, what can be done to, you know, what are the actions that the United States can take that can try to avert this, prevent this, contain it, you know, wh whatever can be done. And I think that's where the conversation is, is inevitably going to fall because there really are very few good options for, for, for either of these countries. Um, and that has become a cliche in the news in the last few months, but it really is true. So, And yet these are the options that are faced, so that's we, right. have to, we have to sort through them a little bit and, and find out which is the the least worst which is you know what is a course of action that the u.s can take so let's just if, jump if, right into if, that if any do um, we uh what do we do about the iran nuclear deal uh, from, from my perspective and, and, and i'll kind of jump on here i think a lot of it depends on exactly how compliant the iranians are if they are genuinely complying with the deal i think it's asinine to decertify and say they're not complying that walks back years of careful diplomacy. I also think that the alternatives to diplomacy in Iran are spectacularly bad. And we've seen sanctions. You know, Iran has had sanctions in place since 1979, since the Islamic Revolution, and they haven't. And, and yet they're still, you know, on the on the doorstep of of, of being a nuclear power. They have uh, a nuclear power station. Uh, up and running and, and, and providing power, sanctions clearly do not work. They don't prevent nuclear proliferation. Military action to prevent Iran achieving a, you know, a nuclear weapon probably doesn't work either if it falls short of regime change. And whether the US, fresh out of, I looked this up this morning and I think it's worth noting this, there have been 4,424 U.S. servicemen killed in Iraq since the start, since 2003. There have been 179 U.K. servicemen killed and 139 from other coalition countries. That is a staggering toll of life to go into Iraq and, and affect regime change there, many would argue unsuccessfully. Iran is a country three times the size with three times the population of Iraq and far more resolved, far more homogenous. You know, there is no sectarian infighting in Iran. There's not a 45-55 a Shia Sunni split in Iran. They are a 99% right. um, Shia country. They are their military forces they have over 500,000 active troops, another 400,000 reservists. This is not an easy or cheap war to win. It would be won, obviously, but it is not going to be at, at a cost. It'll be at a greater cost even than Iraq. Um, and I don't know if that's a good use of American lives and um, American uh, money. The Federation of American Scientists estimates that the cost of such a war would be $1.7 trillion dollars to the global economy, and that's not even counting um, stock market devaluations and, yeah. and the, the fallout from that. So 
I think diplomacy has to be the way forward. And I think with Iran, you see a, a better chance of that working than, than in North Korea that is, and we'll, we'll talk about North Korea later. I think we'll talk, deal with Iran first. Um, in, a, in a country that does have, albeit limited democracy, in a country that does have diplomatic relations with most of the rest of the world, there is an avenue there to pursue. And really it's the only avenue that, that, that in any way makes sense to me. I, I think it's an avenue that we've already started down with some degree of success. I mean, I think if you look at where Iran was in the early 2000s, it's where essentially North Korea is now. And we were able to pretty significantly de-escalate that situation through, as Cove said, years of diplomatic process. I think I, I agree with a lot of what you said in terms of in terms of the cost of the war. I think I think you might have undersold how catastrophic a military action would be in that region in terms of already the most the region with the least ability in the world and now you're talking about potentially you know a a nuclear arms race or something that you know it's a situation that of anywhere in the world you want it to happen there the least Um, I think you talk about the size of Iran you also talk about the fact that they control the Strait of Ormuz Ormuz, Ormuz, where I think 20% yeah. of the world's oil comes through. I mean, the implications of a war there are untenable for, I think, any anyone who would be looking at that war. And I think the ally relationships there are the next piece that I would add to what you said. I think from a diplomacy standpoint, it's been made pretty clear that the UK, Germany, the allies that we've agreed to this deal with want to keep it in place. And going against those allies at this stage, I think, is a pretty big risk considering the diplomatic efforts that we're looking to get into with North Korea. I'm just going to jump in and just say that actually these are not natural allies either. Britain, the US, Germany, sure. for sure. China, Russia. China, right? Russia. Right. This is all five members of the UN Security Council in Germany. These are not countries that agree on much, and yet they ge- they all agree on this. So let me, let me add this, or at least maybe propose pro- propose a question to the group one of the things i haven't heard mentioned uh, right right now and i think should be on the table is um with with sanctions um uh towards iran you know it's it's pretty evident that there, there there really could be pretty major economic um i don't know if i should use the word benefit but i guess what i'm getting at is with sanctions applied to iran it could create considerable upside in the oil and gas, like in 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 the, in the economy. Meaning, oil prices um, um, obviously uh, could 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 rise. Um, the the price of the barrel has been very low, so you know I start kind of asking questions to myself. Are there other kind of geopolitical kind of motives? Uh, kind of wanted to get y'all's perspective on on, on that. Genuinely, I don't think increasing sanctions on Iran has a positive economic effect. Um, I think the depreciation in in oil price has a lot more to do with domestic U.S. production than it does increase from the Middle East and OPEC. Um, You have to remember that until very recently, Iran hardly exported any oil because of sanctions, and it didn't stop their nuclear regime, and it didn't particularly help the U.S. economy either. and I think when you tr- when when we merge 
the security implications of nuclear proliferation and what's good for US oil companies, those two things don't always go hand in hand and the security consideration has to come first. I don't know if you agree with that. No, I just think it's interesting because right now with the, 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 the price of the barrel being around like 30, right? I think I don't think there's any question that with sanctions being applied, you know, OPEC's even talking about projections of prices kind of going up and even reaching back to norms that we had several years back around like $100. So I definitely think um, it has fairly significant or potential economic um you know, upside uh, for at least for the United States. And I've just kind of asked myself, is that something that um, is being considered by, uh, by, by U.S. government kind of le- le- leadership? I mean, in my view, independent or in, dis- in spite of the economic upside, there are things that have to be considered first. And I, I think that's, Cove and I seem to be on the same page with that. I think, the economic upside would have to be pretty remarkable to overcome the potential catastrophe that sanctions followed by nuclear buildup followed by the potential for some sort of military confrontation would ultimately have. So uh, this this leads in very nicely, actually, and I'd like to move to to North Korea as well. Um, And I think we have to talk about trying to get in the other person's shoes and looking at it from their perspective. And I think that there's an element here that that crosses both Iran and and North Korea in terms of actions in the past two decades by the U.S. and and her allies have put in has uh, have developed a world in which it's not particularly secure to be a dictator of a small country, and we've seen this with Saddam Hussein, we've seen this with Gaddafi, we've seen this with there have been a lot of autocrats losing their power often by US often at the hands of US led coalitions, US led rebels, US supported forces. So if you were the autocratic ruler of a state like North Korea or Iran or really any other or North African state, what what guarantee do you have that your regime is going to endure? And clearly, alliance with the U.S. doesn't work either because Saddam Hussein tried that and um, Gaddafi tried that for a little bit. It didn't work out so well. And certainly, Hosni Mubarak tried that. There was a a feeling for a long time that you could ally with the U.S. as a dictator and the U.S. would put up with your domestic repression in exchange for political stability. That does not. That is not the case anymore. That is not how U.S. foreign policy works anymore. And... Now, dictators are in this position where probably fairly logically, the only thing they can see that guarantees their security and power is a nuclear deterrent. And so until you remove this problem, until you remove this trust issue that any autocratic ruler is going to have, that the US can any day come and bash down the door and remove me from power and hang me, hang my family, you know. And it, until that threat is removed, you are never going to get rid of the absolutely life and death incentive that autocratic rulers have to go after nuclear technology. So 
I don't know how you solve this because also the US shouldn't be in the game of propping up dictators. Nevertheless, we're in this world now where if you're an autocratic ruler, you you logically have to go after a nuclear weapon because it's the only thing that keeps your regime secure in a world where US forces have toppled so many dictators in the last 10 years. I agree to an extent. I mean, I okay, so I, I understand. I think where and of course we can't police the the whole world we can't we can't subject every country to democracy even though it works for us we think it's the best i mean i, I think we know it's the best form of government out there but to to be competitive in today's world i don't think it requires a nuclear weapon and i think that's wh- i think that was your point i think that there's a level of oppression that can be released in these but but how do you actually mandate that how do you say like we're gonna we're gonna sanction your country until you don't require your citizens to wear a pin that you know has some semblance of the kim family like it so there are other and of course we don't have really any diplomatic ties to to north korea so that in itself is a major issue i mean there there's really no conversation to have and here we have, you know, Trump resorting to Twitter a, as his form of conversation, which doesn't bode well for anyone. But I, I don't really understand. I don't agree quite that with your premise that it has to be nuclear, or they feel threatened by the U.S. And that, did I did I misunderstand? You didn't misunderstand. And I, I, and I think if I was in the position of a Kim Jong Un, I would genuinely believe that the only way I could guarantee my regime's survival is with a nuclear weapon. And, and, I, and or, I think... Or a change of his regime, but I know that that's not... That's, it, it's way easier said than done, so it's, I get it's, that. It's not only easier said than done, but I think you, you, you get into this problem where when you have systematically repressed and lied to a population for so long... Sure. And and we saw it in Afghanistan. I mean, we, yeah. we put in... We held the elections, and we still arguably... You know, the, they could topple... Yeah. No, there is there is no regime like the Kim regime. That that regime could not survive gradual releasing and opening up of their society. Right. As soon as the the people of North Korea start to understand what's happened over the last fifty years, there is no way that family can stay in power for the next two three generations, or even for this generation. And that is the problem they've got themselves in now. Is that tapering off of the kind of the autocracy is is not a viable option for for him either because it will inevitably lead to revolution in his overthrow and we've seen I mean, we've seen that in in so many countries where slight liberalization leads to a snowballing and eventually the loss of power for the ruling class the ruling family or the ruler himself so when you look at history when you look at recent history history over the last 200 years it's precarious to be a dictator. It's precarious to be an autocratic ruler of a state. And the requirements to keep yourself in that position look very different from the inside than from the outside. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people in power who genuinely see no other option if they want to stay in power. And realistically, these people staying in power is the only way they stay alive as well. So it literally is a life and death Who's 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 North Korea's biggest trade partner? China. 
And what is China doing in all this? Very little. And, and China does, everyone's fairly certain, not regulate sanctions on North Korea to the best of their ability. Um, in what we, we want them to be doing a lot more. Right. And so that's kind of where I'm, I'm, I'm getting at or at least leading the discussion, right? Because we're, we're talking about a lot of different you know, factors, right? You can't just isolate it and say, what, what should what should the United States like do here? Um, you know, if if China is North Korea's biggest trade partner and they're right next to China, um, um, or right next to North Korea, what should China be doing, or what should we be doing to influence like China? I mean, what is what, what is impeding all of this? I I, I think that's a good point, Harold, and that th- that actually goes back kind of to what Cove you and I were talking about with the Iran deal. In my opinion, I th- I think. We have that agreement with China. We have some amount of diplomatic tie with China right now. They are going to be an important ally, un- non-traditional ally, as you said, in any solution, any peaceful solution that occurs in North Korea. And I think it, it yeah. now more than ever, it's important that we find a way to utilize that diplomatic relationship because, as as Jake mentioned, we don't have a diplomatic relationship with North Korea. We, we, we don't. Um, but the problem with... So what you were speaking to, I think, is interesting. Um, what leverage, right, do we have, like, with like China, particularly in an environment where, as you're looking at trade and you're looking at the dollar and you're looking at debt, right? How and does China's how, a huge owner of U.S. Right, debt? Right. So that was kind yeah. of my thing. Who, who, who owns, right, the debt? I, I think. But firstly, there's some leverage. There's, there's definitely, there's a desire in Beijing to have good relations with the United States. And I, and I, I don't doubt that for, for a moment. I, I believe the Chinese government is sincere in wanting to be a more integrated nation, a superpower in the global community. And, and that really revolves around their relationship with the United States. What I would say is be aware of what China fears from North Korea. And China fears a humanitarian catastrophe on its northern border far more than it fears a North Korean nuclear weapon. And that's really where the incentives aren't aligned. The US doesn't really care if 100 million North Koreans pour into northern China because they're starving and sanctions have completely broken down the North Korean economy or there's a North Korean uprising or there's a military repression in North Korea that leads to so many refugees. These are issues that China is genuinely concerned about and yet don't concern the united states at all sure uh, there's certainly a different dynamic china north korea versus u.s north korea because of that shared border so you have the, i mean north korea to china is like this little fly that, that, that just won't go away but of course you know when you do get refugees pouring into your country that that has major implications on their economy their whole you know sense of country yeah. and for the u.s what we're witnessing are nuclear tests, uh, ICBM tests, and so they're starting to really threaten our sovereignty as well. I mean, obviously, that's why we're discussing this. Yeah, these are a- these are weapons aimed at U.S. territories and U.S. allies. They're not aimed at Shanghai or Beijing or right. Guangzhou. The the Chinese the do not have a huge amount to fear from a nuclear North Korea right. in the same way that the United States does. Right, and the only thing that North Korea is now missing is a nuke 
warhead small enough to fit on the ICBM. So they're they're two for three right now, and the what we what we have to get to is what are the implications of them having three for three. And I think the answer is who knows. I think we can we can whether we can Rocket Man actually uses them yeah. or not. <laughs> I think we can extrapolate a little bit from from history, and, and I'm sure at the beginning of the Cold War, these same conversations were being had. You know, what happens when Russia gets a nuclear weapon? Sure. Yeah, you know, we're back it, to an arms race. Will it will it will it lead to nuclear war? Will the human race destroy itself? And in the end, the self-interest of people to survive means that you don't launch nuclear weapons. Russians didn't launch nuclear weapons. You know, when two enemies as implacable as India and Pakistan both have nuclear warheads and don't use them on each other, it's pretty clear that even the most aggressively, the most strongly aggressive enemies towards each other draw the line before that. Right. And so I think you have to probably come to the conclusion especially if you believe, as I do, that the only real objective of the North Korean regime is to stay in power domestically, you have to assume that a nuclear-armed North Korea is actually not a threat to the United States and that a nuclear war will not happen just because of the assured destruction that will come of, the, of, of their own country should, should that happen. So there is an argument to be made that this is all a very dangerous storm in a teacup, and that the long-term ramifications of a nuclear North Korea, and a nuclear Iran for that matter, are less severe than people make out because the very fact of nuclear weapons pretty much predetermines their non-use. I don't know whether people generally agree with that. I, I would agree with that. I think, I mean, I think it's a, it's obviously a dangerous game to try to understand what his intentions are but i tend to side with you that he's more interested in self-preservation and maybe a little bit of narcissism in what is essentially a family business in the form of an autocratic government than he is in ending mankind uh, again a dangerous gamble to make but i tend to agree with you that that's the 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 right gamble so we have we have a couple minutes remaining, and uh, Muma, you're in that same class with me with General Dempsey, and we talked very briefly about it. I don't want to put words in the general's mouth, but one way that he suggested, or an action that he suggested the U.S. take is to stop our testing on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, we do an annual test out there, and it could be that the North Korean regime takes that as, um, you know, as almost an assault on their own sovereignty and and should we just abandon that test can we do it elsewhere take it down to one of our allies we can you know it doesn't have to be there and of course just last night in in the in the wake of the build-up of this uh i guess arms race if you want to call it that um there was another test that we did jointly with our allies on the korean peninsula and so here we go i mean it, the we're we're in full form ready to go if it got there and you know Trump's rhetoric is not is not softening by any means. I I agree. I remember that conversation we had in class, and I think the the key point there is a lot of what Cove's been saying is that it's you know this guy is in self preservation mode, and the more we make him feel like we are preparing ourselves for an attack on the Korean Peninsula, even if it's not imminent, 
we could make a lot of headway by not doing these exercises by slightly reducing troop count from a troop count that's prepared for an offensive mission to a troop count that's prepared for a defensive mission and you want you wonder how far that would go for someone whose main concern is staying in power and you know that that has to increase his comfort level considerably if we were willing to do that instead we're seeming to go the other direction yeah i i I think you're right i think there's there's definitely a merit to kind of de-escalation um if you if you uh, there really you know there is there is a caveat if you genuinely believe that his motivation is self-preservation if if you don't if you believe he is an aggressive um expansionist uh, autocrat then it's a very different calculation if and and so really it, it does hang on that i think one of the things you you're going to butt up against is this this recent history of us exp- kind of aggressiveness towards authoritarian regimes and you have to somehow get a relatively paranoid autocrat to believe that a nation that has toppled half a dozen dictators in the last 20 years has no interest in toppling you and that is a tough sell i don't know that you have to convince him that we have no interest in toppling him but i think you have to convince him that you are not imminently going to participate in the toppling i think you have to convince him that you're you wouldn't be upset if he toppled but you're not going to be the one to start that and i think you have to ask yourself as well right if you're talking about toppling kind of north korean um you know leadership is it can't just be in isolation right like what is china do in that that situation which i think complicates the issue and ultimately kind of begs the question um kind of what is the best like step forward as you're looking at geopolitical um implications um and and obviously china that's Um, just sitting right next door that i don't think would be very keen or excited about um you know the 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 u.s entering uh to 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 kind of take over and the reality is china loves the status quo the status quo works for china just fine um and that really is is a big a, a big issue unless something dramatically changes China's logical reaction is to try and do nothing and try to maintain the status quo well gents it's amazing how fast an hour goes I think uh, you were generous with my time during the soapbox I appreciate you all listening to that uh, it'll be interesting to see how the meeting comes out next week with the, the owners and the players union interesting discussion on foreign policy I really hope to get a uh, an industry expert in the field mic'd up for one of our future episodes. Uh, who knows? Maybe we can even get the general in here. That'd be that'd be pretty sweet. Um, Kyle, thanks for coming on. Hopefully, you become more regular. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, that's been great I having you. I think you were. Uh, I think we'll have to look at the editing, but I, I, I think you know I'm feeling like, hey, he performed well. Let's bring him back. Yeah. Well, anything <laughs> he said against me, I'll edit out. <laughs> uh, as always, we're going to finish by thanking the men and women overseas for allowing us the freedom. Yep. Raise a glass. Thank you, Muma. I'll reach for mine too. Just proving I'm a listener. Yeah. Uh, cheers to those overseas that are allowing us to speak our minds freely and and you know, be able to publish this podcast with no uh, detriment to our daily lives here.
Well, detriment in terms of, you know, are, you know, are we staying within the ideological uh, institutional kind of pathway? Yeah. If we get outside that variance, who knows, right? <laughs> 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 we, we might just get there. All right. Thanks for listening. Over and out. Thanks. All right.